I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With the failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode of the ACSS podcast. I'm Jacob Huth, your host for today, and I'm pleased to be joined with Robert Pratton from uh, Conductor. I'll let you introduce yourself, Robert. Uh, hi, Jacob. Yeah, my name's Robert Pratton. I'm the founder and CEO at Conductor, and we're very uh, proud and delighted to be sort of supporting the um, Australian crisis simulation uh, summit through our through our crisis simulation software. Fantastic. Now, and we've been a, a long-term partner with uh, Conductor ever since 2020, our first year running of the ACSS inaugural summit. So it's great to have you finally on a podcast after four years. But no, just to get us started, where has Conductor been? Uh, what are your goals pr- currently with uh, both Conductor and potentially yourself as well? Um, and where and how do you see Conductor growing as a company going forward? Uh, yes, yeah, so I mean, our uh, sort of mission as a company is to make everyone's life an adventure. And that's because we feel that through adventure, people can achieve their full potential in life. So it's only when you have to sort of step outside your comfort zone that you start to grow. And simulation provides a safe space for people to grow out of their sort of comfort, comfort zone. Now, to answer that question about where we came from, we, we started, um, I mean, my background is that I have a sort of computing degree, uh, but then I worked in the sort of telecoms industry as a sort of marketing consultant in, in an area called intelligent networks. And that's where you have a computer controlled a telephony network, things like uh, premium phone numbers and free phone numbers and this type of thing. And I spent a couple, I, I sort of did that in the, in the last century now, I can say that. And then what happened was um, I went to film school and I made a couple of feature films, but I really missed um, the kind of uh, the, uh, the technology side. And so when I set up the company, it was to create this fusion of technology and storytelling. So we started in the entertainment space because that's where I thought, um, there might be an opportunity because at the time, and it, we're talking about sort of 2008, 2009 now, at the, at the time, lots of creative industries were being decimated by piracy because the internet was becoming a big thing. YouTube was just getting started and so on. And so um, we thought, well, experiences are going to be difficult 
to pirate and um, set up the company with uh, Alexi, my business partner, and my, and my wife as well. And we had like quite a lot of success in the entertainment space. We did work for Disney um, on an Iron Man thing. We worked with Cadentia, which is a big, uh, I think it's the biggest manga publisher on a property called Attack on Titan. And we were creating ex immersive experiences uh, that played out in the real world. So you would have your mobile phone, a little bit like sort of Pokemon Go, I guess, where you would, you would be in a real space and you could see stuff on your phone and it would allow you to interact with our platform online. But the main thing was always to be telling a story across multiple platforms. So uh, say, for example, in Spain, we turned the whole of Spain into Westeros for Game of Thrones. And so over a 10 week period while the, while the show was on, you could interact online and you can interact via Twitter. So with Twitter, you could sort of seduce people, betray them, all the stuff that you get from Game of Thrones. But you could also go into stores. They had like Fnac. Uh, Fnac is the, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, they basically sell like DVDs and books and this stuff. Yeah, and they also do like electrical uh, products. But you could go in there and, and there would be posters and the posters changed weekly and there would be a virtual code on there, which allow you to get digital currency to spend in the online game. So all this sort of stuff. So we, so that's, that was our, that's our heritage. But um, in 2018, um, we were looking at the business and everything. And we said, you know what? Crisis simulation is our killer app. So we think there's a big market opportunity here. Let's kill off all of the other entertainment projects and we just finished something for the Olympics as well for the Winter Olympics. Just kill off all the entertainment stuff and let's just focus on crisis simulation. And that is, it was scary at the time because people were contacting us from the old entertainment sort of businesses saying, oh, do you want to take on this project? And we were like, you know what? We're just doing crisis simulation now. And what's happened is we've really uh, taken off and it's it's been an incredible journey for us to to focus on crisis sims so our, our our focus now as a business is to become the way the world does crisis exercising and i think what's sort of unique about our platform is it comes from this alternate reality gaming engine which we now employ for crisis simulations so it's quite it's quite unique in its capabilities and where it is at the moment we sell to corporates and sort of defense organizations governments ngos and it tends to be people with a high-end requirement so it, if you if you think about crisis training and crisis exercising as a spectrum so down one end you could say if it was a game, you would say it was on rails. So there's not too much that you can do because the designer of the game has said, well, I want you to go through this toll gate and then another one and then another one. And you don't have much freedom to explore the world or anything. And at the far end, it's much more open where you can you know, do stuff and someone else will react to it or the system will react to it. And it's less on rails. It's more about understanding the space and, and exploring it and then interacting with it. And what tends to happen is if you have a novice team, 
they're down that sort of scripted end. And if you have an experienced team, they're up that other end where they've got, because otherwise it can be very frustrating if you've got someone's experience and you say, oh, what would you do? Pick A, B or C. And they're like, well, I wouldn't do, I'd do D or E. It is like lots of other things I might do. And so um, that's, that's where we tend to be down that. So we've come from participatory entertainment into participatory education. We, we don't really see ourselves as an education platform because, um, yeah, because I don't know, because that's a whole different industry, really, like educational software. That's not really where we are. We're, what we do is we simulate the information space and people use that for exercising and training, which is a different sort of mindset, different approach. So, that I mean, that was a really long answer to what was a very simple question <laughs> ticked a lot of boxes in terms of like where we are what we're doing and uh no that was an absolutely fantastic response could have asked for a better one um very very surprising to see where the heritage comes from in terms of the entertainment space um and just to reiterate what you were saying before regarding how you have more novice people who would you give them scripted answers of abc uh, or responses to a particular crisis whereas you got the more experienced people who want to pick you know anywhere to anywhere from d to z and we see that with our teams as well and you know as the crisis writing teams move throughout they start to develop much a much greater expanded realm of thinking what and start to think about things that they never would have thought before in terms of options um and that also happens with our delegate, delegates, even just in a week's time. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting to see how these sort of choose your own adventure softwares and platforms like Conduct are able to give that to people. Really, I'm interested. Why, as a quick question, why don't you consider your platform as an educational tool? And what's the difference between an educational tool and um, what you would consider Conductor to be? Well, because I think on the, people that say they do educational software do tedious e-learning type exercises where you go on, you click a button, you're forced to watch a video, and then you answer some questions, and they've proven to be ineffective, and they're just boring. And usually, in a big corporate, someone will just get their secretary or someone to click through the buttons, because now the software's got you know got wise to the fact that people are just skipping through the video, so they so they won't let you just progress automatically. So now you just get someone else to do it, or you it's just it's just rubbish. And what we're doing is creating an adventure, and and at the moment you think about educational software you don't think about it adventure you just think about something that's compliance related oh i've got to do this tedious exercise in order to get my continued professional development up or whatever you know or for some compliance reason for cyber security check-in and that's not what we're about and so we're much more in this kind of um yeah give you full agency to respond as you would in the real world. And, our, and our, so our software, for anybody that doesn't know, if you're a player, you would interact through the web through a web browser, which could be hosted on the cloud or for defense ex exercises that run at secret, it would be on a private sort of premises-based uh, solution. But the principle is still the same, that the, the players interact through a, through a web browser where they see a virtual desktop 
of all their familiar apps. Now, it's not just social media channels like Twitter and Facebook and so on and email and sort of, you know, fake sort of Slack and instant messaging type stuff. It's not just that. It's also the tools that they would use in their real life. So things like UA Maps, where you get sort of crisis alert in and you can see the thing. It's things a little bit like Brandwatch or Data Miner, where what if you're an intelligence analyst or if you're in the information operations, you would be um, monitoring the information environment and you would say to it, I want you to alert me if this hashtag starts to trend or if this network of adversaries starts to get, you know, too active or something like that. So you can do that with our software. And it, it means that it's much more like real life so that when you when you finish your uh crisis exercise with conductor it's not like you have to interpret what you did and see how you're going to implement that at work you've actually just been doing your job but in a safe environment so that's so that's why that that's how i would distinguish us uh, from other platforms no no i think i i really like that conceptualization of simulation spaces as safe spaces to really fail um and to do your job but without the real world consequences it's quite a it's it's i think one of the major reasons why we at the acss really believe in the value of simulations um the canadians got in trouble recently because um they were sort of training for information operations but doing it on their own public <laughs> this got out and that's a big no-no so you know if they had been using our software it would seem like you were on, you know, uh, interacting with a real public, but actually it, it could have all been fictional and simulated. And then you're not going to cross any ethical boundaries and be, a, you know, get accused rightly or wrongly of sort of trying to manipulate your own public, which is forbidden. So in regards, we're talking about simulations here, but there's a huge, a lot of people, even uh, people at ACSS still find it hard to distinguish between wargaming and simulation and crisis simulations more specifically so i was hoping you could give a bit of a uh debrief as to what are what are the differences between those two and what are the benefits and limitations of each um yeah so the way to think about um them as being different is in terms of your outcome your desired outcomes so with a simulation Typically, the people who build the simulation know what responses they're looking for. So you would have certain training objectives. <clears throat> you would have trained observers that would watch the training audience go through this exercise. And if they started to stray outside the boundaries of where you want them to be in terms of training outcomes, you can then interact with the information environment as exercise control to bring them back online and you could without saying to them you can't go there you can make it you can strengthen your adversary so they get that they back off and they try a different path or something so that would be a simulation where you we have known outcomes with a war game usually it's to explore a new area and find new solutions so then you would have typically a red team and a blue team, blue being um, friendly, red being the adversary. And you're expecting that blue tries to find solutions 
to a certain a certain problem that you that you've set for them. But nobody <clears throat> is going to say to them, "You can't do that. You can't do this." And and so with, with say for example with a simulation, you'd have certain injects because you've got a time, <clears throat> and over the time you want certain audiences to be reacting, or you want you know this bridge is going to get blown up or whatever it might be. But in a war game. Blue is going through its mission and it's much more of a exploration space and you might have nothing scripted and then Red is interacting with them. And in this case, the observers, um, they're looking for insights into the way that people are trying to achieve their objectives and the way that Red is countering what Blue are doing, this type of thing. And you might also find that at the end of the exercise, all the operational analysts will download the data and then they'll sit for a week, you know, in their cubicle or wherever they do their analysis. Apologies to any operational analysts um, where they will then analyze all the data and sort of start to mine it for insights. <clears throat> and, and that might then end up getting turned into doctrine or something like this. And then that doctrine would then find its way back into a crisis exercise where you want to know, are people fighting or, you know, performing the way that we have instructed them to? Or, the, you know, are they following best practice? So that's the difference. Very, very, very good answer. No, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, can you walk us through the initial stages of developing Conductor and how have, you know, the software and hardware uh, technology advances changed and enhanced your product's results for you know, simulation designers, facilitators, and the participants themselves. Yeah, so in the beginning, remember, we had this platform that was intended to react with the real world. So it would connect to the real Facebook, the real YouTube, and it would listen for like certain number of views on a video. And it would, so everything's event driven. So it would wait for a certain number of views on a video and then, that might trigger an email or it might trigger a blog post. And all of that content is going out in the real world. It might be someone with a the Conductor mobile app that's doing this thing with Cadentia. They go into a, a particular uh, geo-fenced area and that triggers an event and then Conductor plays through. What's happening now is because we moved away from uh, – sort of entertainment space and let's say, you know, like sort of regular consumers of entertainment properties, everything got brought in-house. So now we simulate Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the rest of it, Reddit and so on. And so nothing goes out onto the real world. And predominantly everything's done on the cloud because it's convenient. People can connect from wherever they were it was quite interesting before the sort of covid lockdowns is that we were saying to people oh you you know you realize you don't have to do all this travel you could actually you know interact through video conferencing and just connect wherever you are and everyone's like no 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 it's really important that everyone comes together in the same room lockdown happened and then everyone's like uh can we do this remotely yeah of course you can we've been telling you that for the last you know four years or whatever it was so um so that yeah, so that was one thing, and then we have um, implemented a premise-based version because some organisations have exercises that they don't want anybody to ever be able to hack. 
So as secure as everyone will say their software is, and we would be the same, um, if it's on the cloud, it's obviously much more vulnerable than if it's on someone's premises. And in the military exercises that we've been involved in, people are having to take their SIM card out of their mobile phone, you know, like 400 yards before they get onto the exercise field. So there's no way that, you know, any adversary is getting access to that exercise. Um, so that's kind of the way it's changed. And then what we're, what we're doing now is we're, I wouldn't say full circle, but what we're doing is we're starting to implement um, real world connections. Oh, when I say real world, like let's say third party connections back into Conductor. So we have all these APIs um, that we've, that's a sort of a, a programming interface, the way that other systems can interact with Conductor. So we've always had that, but we just turned them off while we've been doing this sort of crisis and stuff. But what we're doing now is we're working with a couple of value-added resellers that are building additional capabilities for particular nations on top of the Conductor platform. Um, so it's still using Conductor's core, but they've got other capabilities that are proprietary to them that would run through our, you know, through our thing. So that that's kind of like where we're where we where we're going with it. And I think we we see ourselves as a bit like, well, I see I see the military exercises that we get involved in as sort of like the Formula One. So if you're a car manufacturer, you have a Formula One car, and then all the innovations that you do for that, you you eventually see trickle down into the production version that everyone else uses. So a lot of the innovation is driven by defense and security type stuff because they tend to be the most demanding. But we don't develop anything that can't be used in the corporate space. It's just that um, they might, you know, it's a bit like Excel. There's thousands of features and maybe most people probably just use it to add up a row of numbers. But you've got all these macros, all these other features. So our power users tend to be defense and security. Um, the ACSS being being on their way to being a power user, I would say, for the exercises that you're running. And then we have just regular corporate people that just use a fraction, really, of the capability. But it still gives them, you know, lots of benefits for what they want to do. But um, it's not different software. If they ever wanted to level up or turn on that increased functionality, they could do. It's just that for their purposes, they don't. They tend not to not to always need it depends on their on their size so you've just been speaking about the differences between the military and uh, the corporate applicability of the conductor software can you go into where uh, perhaps some industry sectors and domains aren't using simulation softwares enough in your opinion and what will get them there to using enough so i think the people that are using simulation the most are the ones that feel like they've got the most to lose through not having capable teams. <clears throat> so if you, you know, if you're in a, a company and I, I don't think, I don't think it's uniform across industries, it tends to be company wide. So if you're the, if you're the sort of company that says, well, this is all nonsense. These events are not going to happen. Don't, you know, or when it, when it happens, we'll deal with it then. There's no point in putting effort into training people up. 
then you'll tend to do PowerPoint presentations and you think it's enough to say, oh, there's a flood. What do we do? And people sit around, usually sort of C-level sort of type people, you know, executives, and they sort of lean back in their chair with their arms behind their head and they go, well, of course, if there was a flood, I would do this and I would do that. And it's very, in, in, you know, and nobody gets challenged on it or, you know, there's a, a very comfortable conversation. That's fine. But then when things go wrong, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 right, exactly. Because in a stressful situation, your faculties tend to shut down. You have very narrow vision. Um, you don't listen to people properly when they're telling you that things are going wrong. It's really important for people to tell you like two or three times to make or get confirmation that you've actually heard what they're saying because, you're, because your body is reacting to a stressful thing. So organizations that understand that want to rehearse so that their staff are enabled in these situations and also what also the other thing is as well if you're in a large organization global organization for example something might happen in australia that could that could affect them in california or could affect them in london because all of a sudden this is blown up social media is international and they will have different teams in different parts of the world and they need to know when do i when do i escalate this right and by going through a real exercise, not only can they practice what's in their crisis manuals, but they but they can also um, like practice the collaboration because maybe they don't know those other people very well. And, you know, if the first time you're interacting with someone is in the middle of a crisis, maybe you've not built up the trust. So what you what you find is that. Yeah, to summarize, um, organizations with the most to lose um, tend to be the ones who want to exercise in a realistic way rather than just paying lip service to the fact that, yeah, yeah, you know, we did this. I think that's a that's a fantastic point in in terms of touching on the psychological aspects of dealing with the crisis, whether it's simulated or real life. So my question being how should participants better manage the psychological stress of engaging in simulations and therefore preparing for real life crises? Well, I mean, it's like anything really, you, you have to, basically what's good about a simulation is it accelerates experience. So you've got lots of people that have been through real crises and they tend to be very senior people, but at some point they're going to retire you've got lots of younger people coming through how do they get their experience and if that very senior person who's got all this real world experience because they've lived through lots of issues if they're not available for whatever for whatever reason how does everybody else cope and so what's what's good about um simulations is that young people novices or people that haven't thankfully uh, sat through a real crisis can start to can start to develop their confidence and it pretty much it is about confidence it's not and confidence comes from um not just your own capabilities but how supportive the environment is it's also important uh, to to have like diversity in crisis teams as well because things might happen and you're trying to interpret that and if if you're like 
one particular demographic in the crisis team, you're going to interpret that in a different way to another demographic in the crisis team. And you want that open conversation to go on. So in terms of, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I do, I do know that you're not going to get that conversation going if you're not in a real in a real simulated stressful sort of situation and what you've i mean there's this thing about sort of crawl walk run so what organizations will do is say depending on their level of readiness they might crawl so that means the information's coming through at a very manageable speed and then they start to um, walk so things are getting a little bit more hairy <laughs> and then when they feel like they can run there's a deluge of information and now they're having to analyze, assess, discuss, agree, and then act, and then see the consequences of those of those actions. And it gets very stressful. People, you can see sweat coming off of people's heads. So, um, but you don't want to, you don't necessarily want to dump someone in at that end because all you're going to do is demoralize everybody. And what you're trying to do is build their confidence. So you start, you start where you think they are able to take the pressure and then you slowly build up the pressure. And what that does is they start to feel more comfortable. So when a real event happens, of course, it's going to be a little bit more heightened, but they'll be like, okay, what did I learn in training? I'm familiar with these emotions. I'm going to be able to deal with this because I dealt with it before and, and, and it, you're in a much safer position. It, it's a fun little balance trying to uh attain between when you're designing the simulations whether to how how much you want to challenge them because you want to challenge them enough but not to the breaking point because as soon as you break them um you put them to let's say too much information is being pumped through at too high of a frequency and their brain just cannot handle the data input happening at such a accelerated time frame and so you know as designers it's quite interesting to see us trying to uh, tackle that balance between challenging enough and too challenging i mean just on that just on that point right so in um in storytelling theory you get there's this idea of um kernels and satellites so um a kernel is basically your the core tent poles of your exercise so without those you don't you don't have the simulation then you've got the satellites which are additional content um additional sort of subplots and so on that you can layer on top of those tent poles. And so um, if you feel it's necessary, so what you can do is like, so the British um, sort of military have got this idea that they don't want people to be paddling and they don't want people to be drowning. They want the water level to be just under their nose so that they feel like they're just on top of it. So what you can do is when you, when you design your crisis exercise, you start off with those tent poles. <clears throat> so you say like, well, these are my training objectives. If I don't have these, if I don't have these core elements, I'm not going to achieve the training objectives. So you put those in place. Then what you can do is um, with our software, with things like pattern of life and so on. And with the addition, because you can, because with our software, you can run multiple master events lists, multiple event lists. Then you would add additional content and you watch you watch what the training audience are doing. You listen for how they're reacting and you say to yourself, well, they're coping okay, actually. Let me unleash a little bit more 
chaos. <laughs> let me let me stress them a little bit more. And then if you find them suffering, then you can sort of back off. You just kill one of those event lists or you just, you know, kill that audience and let them return to sort of the normal or, you know, a, a, a pace that they could, they can manage. Yeah, no, it's interesting. How would you, it's, how would you prepare people for perhaps a real life scenario whereby it does actually break them and there's no person it's almost it's almost like we we as the designers um and facilitators of the simulations uh like the the passenger in the when people are learning to drive and they can you know press the brakes when it gets a bit too fast or whatnot or the player loses control or whatnot but in a real life scenario where perhaps you don't have that magical godlike figure to put a brake on things it's a bit of it's a bit of a vague question so how should we help participants particularly delegates at the acss prepare for crises that won't have a more lenient uh designer or facilitator i kind of feel like with the so the point of this of a simulation is not to break the training audience because what you're trying to do is build their confidence so they will know that that was hairy and if it had gone to the next step, I don't know what I would have done. And then you can have an after action review and they can share those concerns. But predominantly, you want them to survive <laughs> rather than tear them down. Yeah, okay. yeah. So when sure. you right. so so it's more of a long term progress going. This is I was pushed my breaking point here. So after action report, see how I can exactly do better next time. So that breaking that threshold can be pushed further up. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly that. Because if you think if you think of personal development in terms of like, so right now we're in a comfort zone, right? And then you need to go, you need to step outside the comfort zone in order to develop. But if you go too far, you're going to feel really exposed and vulnerable and scared, and you just run straight back into the comfort zone, right? That's that's the psychological reaction. So what you're trying to do is saying, okay, what's what's the previous experience of all the delegates that are going to take part in this? And how far outside of their comfort zone do we think we can take them without them feeling like they've got to shut down and run back? As, as players reach their breaking point at, during the simulations and they start to acknowledge where their threshold is, how do you advise they go away afterwards and think about this and debrief themselves and self-reflect so that they can push this threshold of what they can handle more and more and more to become a better crisis responder. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, they are in the hat, the delegates, the participants are in the hands of exercise control of the designers and of exercise control. And what you want is in the design of the exercise is for each person to have agency so that they can engage as much or as little as they want. And so if it gets too hairy, uh, if it gets too stressful for them, they're able to step outside of that or raise a hand. And so I don't know what I'm doing. This is all just too much for me. It's overwhelming. You've got to do something. Now, what what you really want is to spot that before it happens and go a little bit easier on them. Then, any after action review, the observers will be saying to people, right, well, there was this moment where I was expecting you to step up and you didn't, or this team, I was expecting you to, you know, 
for this to happen. Or you took this action and it was a suboptimal action. So you did this and you got this reaction from the, you know, from the adversary or from other from other stakeholders in that exercise. How do you think that could have gone better? So there's 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 still a role for a trained um, observer, trained consultant to give that to 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 coach people through the aftermath, so that they walk away thinking, okay, I need to work on that. Let me think about that. But what you don't want to do is tear them down. <laughs> you don't want to like you don't have, have someone destroyed because then they're not going to engage, and you're going to you're going to want to give them feedback. But they're already shut down. They're like they're in fu mode. <laughs> they're not listening. See what I mean? So that's the thing. But that, so that, and now I think that's the challenge of writing exercises. First off, the exercise has to be relevant, right? So if you've if you've got people and their job is to do one thing, but you write an exercise which is focused on a different role, they're like, well, that's that's not even appropriate for me. Right. So first off, it has to be relevant and then it has to resonate. So if you come up with something which is too far fetched, they'll go, well, this is this would never happen. Now, often people say this would never happen and it's a defense mechanism because you could say, well, it has happened because actually what I'm doing is I'm I've, you know, written an exercise based on something that happened back in a certain year. Um, but, but but predominantly, normally you would pitch it to them. So the delegates are coming. So you're going to take part in this exercise. It's going to be set in the South China Seas or wherever. And it's we're going to look at these sort of things. And they go, bloody hell, that's relevant. I can really see how I can contribute to that. That is something that I really want. So they're already enthusiastic about it. And then when they get in there, they want to see, um, you know, stakeholders behave in a realistic way. And the moment they don't, and this is why you know, on these big sort of live command post exercises, you'll have ex-ambassadors, you know, XP, you know, people that have done that job working in exercise control so that when somebody sends, um, you know, if, if you need to send them a diplomatic message or, you know, they ask for help from the higher up, the response they get is something that is actually credible uh, because what, the other thing you don't want is for them to learn the wrong lessons. So there's yeah there's a lot there's a lot going into it but it's all really um, at the design stage when you start thinking about the training objectives the training audience um, and giving everybody enough to do so on, on a corporate exercise um, you might have you know you, you might have like the legal team the communications team finance team so on you need to give enough for everybody to do because um, otherwise they're like just sitting around but also it needs to be role specific so it's all is yeah it's, 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 I think it's a fascinating uh, fascinating area I love the storytelling aspect of it and then bringing it to life it's great are you ready to take your career to new heights whatever your goals or passions postgraduate study can help get you there faster from short courses that can be completed in just six months to dual discipline master's programs that allow you to specialize in your chosen field, there is no better place to study law, international relations and diplomacy than the Australian National University in Canberra, the nation's law and policy making heart. Applications are now open at the ANU College of Law. 
Choose from our flagship Master of Laws, a one-year full-time program open to both law and non-law graduates with five distinct specialisations. The Juris Doctor, which is your pathway to becoming a practising legal professional. Or the Graduate Certificate of New Technologies Law, which is delivered entirely online and explores the rapid advancements of artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain and more on the legal landscape. Best of all, you'll learn from some of the world's foremost experts that include judges and policymakers from across Australia, not to mention legal scholars at the top of their fields in international law, national security, diplomacy and more. Our graduates go on to achieve remarkable success in their careers, making their mark in law firms, government agencies, the international civil service and beyond. So if you're ready to unlock your potential and new career opportunities, study law and change the world at ANU. Visit law.anu.edu.au to explore our programs and begin your journey today. You know, it's, it's really interesting seeing how particularly ACSS, we've refined it from years to years. Like with the crash writing teams have learned a lot of these lessons, whether that be relevancy, um, you know, uh, equal distribution or relevant distribution of the amount of information, what that information is per the teams and who your actual audience being the players actually is and what they want to achieve out of it themselves. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different factors you have to analyze. Bit of a far-fetched question, but in terms of, you know, as a, as a fan of science fiction yourself and the uh, your history with entertainment, how useful do you think fiction storytelling is useful for these real life uh simulated scenarios and how much how much can we use almost science fiction as or just fiction in general as a way to help expand our creativity in these storytelling yeah massively massively i mean we as humans our mind um is uncomfortable with random pieces of information right so we're always telling ourselves stories we're always trying to fit information into a narrative and usually what happens is you decide what your narrative is and then you fit you fit that data to to the you know like i'm left wing or right wing information comes up and you fit you shape that to fit because you don't you don't want your worldview to be challenged what's good about fiction writing is you can take people into a into a different space where maybe they're less um they they feel their values are less being are being confronted less and then they then they start to reevaluate so you kind of like using analogy this is this is why i prefer star trek to star wars because one of the great things about star trek is and science fiction in general is that you can put people on a different planet and explore contemporary social issues and people don't feel immediately now a film i do not like is avatar because it's totally on the nose and there's no ambiguity good storytelling is about allowing enough space for reflection and interpretation and the problem with a lot of big hollywood blockbusters is that everything's just dished up to you or ram down your throat and then you feel like oh god you know i just spent and also the films are like way too long but um that's a that's a different thing so yeah so to, now the the problem is that 
when you run an exercise, let's 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 take something that might be it's becoming less science fiction, but um, autonomous uh, drones like autonomous vehicles. So you or um, space like Star Wars. Uh, so where people are shooting down satellites and stuff like that. If you're going to run an exercise, they tend to need to be near future rather than distant future. So if it's near future where people could say, well, I could really imagine like that Boston Robotics Terminator droid running through the battlefield, ripping people's limbs and stuff like that, right? So people could imagine that and they can see what's happening in a terrible situation in the Ukraine right now where you've got, you know, autonomous submersibles trying to blow up battleships, you know, drones in the air and, you know, all kinds of improvisational stuff. So they can they can see that and it feels relevant. But if you start getting it into sort of like... If you go beyond the hypersonic missiles and you start getting into sort of, well, I mean, directed energy weapons, you know, have you heard of that Havana syndrome? There's a lot of people at embassies. Yeah, it's got, I think it's called Havana syndrome. So there's a lot of people because it, it was the first discovered in Cuba, but there's a lot of embassy staff that are going on sick leave, reporting headaches and stuff like that. And um, they don't want to mention anyone <coughs> China, but what they're saying is, that, um, you know, adversaries might be using these directed energy like sub-frequency sound waves to um, create these sort of like uh, unsettling um, feelings and stuff like that. And this is why lots of embassy staff around the world are going on sick leave or, or whatever. So anyway, so all that sort of stuff, it sounds a bit science fiction-y, but it is credible in quotes because you've got, hints of it already happening in the real world so to do an exercise around that is great but as soon as you say like, oh we're going to have like you know what's that one um the paul verhoven one like starship troopers so now we've got like alien you know you know alien life forms and we're going to have this battle on mars you know or even like mining on the moon and there's a conflict on the dark side of the moon i think that would be a little bit too far-fetched and people go well that's you could even go something as like The Last of Us. Uh, you got, uh, what is it, the fungi that comes around and makes everyone zombies. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, if you think far enough, someone could weaponize that. Um, you know, if they, had, if they had the brain power, which I do not have, but I'm sure I really baited you into going on a science fiction <laughs> So thank you for that. Appreciate that. Very happy. I love science fiction. Um, if I'm interpreting you correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, utilizing that sort of level of creativity but in more of a disciplined way to make sure we're actually you know making it relevant and believable and relevant in both terms of accuracy and time wise yeah it's it's mainly like relevant because it's in the narrative so you could build it you could build you could easily build an exercise about a zombie apocalypse you know and um, we've looked at it as ourselves because sometimes it comes up and you know you might be a bank manager and there's marauding zombies outside and you've got to sort of lock yourself in with the customers that were in at that time all this sort of stuff so you know and then okay are you going to survive for a couple of weeks um if you can't get out but the problem is that the people you're training often they lose their sort of sense of humor when they come into the office (laughs) so so if it's too far-fetched they're like well i'm not going to waste an hour two hours a day 
on a zombie apocalypse, even though you tell me there could be things to learn. Whereas if you say, well, it's actually, this is a pandemic um, and, you know, now or Ebola, something like this, then people are much more, okay, all right, I can see why that's relevant. Let's do it. Definitely trying not to give away <laughs> our simulations this year. But <laughs> you're getting there. You're getting there. Um, definitely not zombies. I can say that now. I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack a bit to more of the software side of things. And so as as it's on your websites and whatnot, um, you've recently integrated uh, generative AI into your systems. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the almost the compatibility and the interaction between human creativity and generative AI, particularly for um, designing the simulations and also, you know, potentially how can things like generative AI being used to respond to simulations and all crises? Yeah, okay, yeah. So I think an important thing about um, the AI that's out there at this time, and it's worth, so this is sort of June 2023, is... This is like basically the first iteration of it. And I feel like it's much like working with an intern or a new joiner. So you can say, can you, you know, can you work on this for me? And they come back with something, but you need to be the expert in order to in order to trust the results. So you go through so you saved you a lot of time, but you still need to review it. And if you ask the wrong question, you're gonna get the wrong answer. So there's still a lot of responsibility on you, the scenario designer, to ask the AI to give you the content. So if you frame the, if you frame your question in the wrong way, you're going to get stuff out. And if you don't know what you're doing, you might just run with that. And there, there's been cases where, um, say, for example, lawyers, th- 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 there was a lawyer that used it to come up with some case history and the uh, the AI came up with this stuff. Hey guys, it's great. Uh, and then it turns out none of that case history ever existed, and uh, it just completely fictionalised it uh, because that's what it does. Why wouldn't it? You know what I mean? And the the thing is with AI, like this generative AI, it's not intelligent. There is no inter- It's a misnomer to call it. Well, I guess it's artificial. It's not intelligent. It's a statistical process by which it says. Oh, well, normally this word follows that word. And therefore, this is on the basis of probability. This is most likely the right answer. Um, And also the the products that are out there at the moment, they're not continually being trained. So um, it's not always learning from its mistakes. You're not like teaching it. You're you as the end user you're not teaching it where it went wrong. You're telling it, you're either accepting the answer or not or, or, or reframing it. Um, someone else is is training it. But we're only, at the, we're only at the beginning. But I do think it's an incredible time-saving. And if you look at the image generation, I mean, it's just incredible time-saving because one of the, one of the challenges is to find... Images that look realistic, that you are have the copyright approval to use, uh, and so on. But with this generative AI, you can just do it. And I mean, Photoshop brought out this generative feel. It was quite funny. My wife was like, "I said to her, oh, Helen, right, this um, 
generative field is amazing. So she's used to like Alexa. And so she thought that generative field, it was like Phil as in Philip. And I was like, no, 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 it's Phil as in F-I-L-L. So you can take up like a portrait image and tell it to fill in to make like, you know, 16, you know, like a landscape image. It's just incredible what it does. It's brilliant. So I, I, I think it's really great. It saves a lot of time. And that's why we didn't waste any time in implementing it into our software, because we wanted people to be spending time thinking about audience participation, thinking about um, how, how I'm going to make this exercise the most realistic I can and spend less time on the production side of having to sort of manually write stuff uh, and, and so on. When you look in the real information space, I think there is a, a valid concern that people can conduct influence operations at scale. Because if you're if you're trying to you know if you want to simulate a sock puppet, well if you if you know if you've got like a troll farm, then normally that troll army um, they're going to build up their expert, expertise over time because they need the language right. They you know they need to sort of like be diverse if, um, of communities in the right way. With AI, they can say well acting as this particular person in Estonia, in this particular group, give me the content that I need in order to upset this other group. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and it, but basically you're de-skilling to a certain degree, a lot of this sort of antagonism. So, and that's only going to get worse. And also the way you could see that, like just right now, like on the dark web, you, you've got like hackers for hire, you've got, you know, malicious code for hire. It'll be the same with this malicious AI, the malicious information networks. It'll all be for hire. You just go, oh, I've got this group over here in this particular country. Um, I've got this election coming up. I really want to upset them. Can you can you create a load of fake accounts to really wind them up? And uh, they go, yeah, sure. And off they go, you know. Uh, it's definitely going to be a learning curve to see how people avoid the temptations of overusing it to a detrimental extent um but no that <laughs> your example there with the the trolls or like using it to anger another political side or another you know ideological cultural group it's interesting how we're actually using that at the moment um to generate sort of a, the ai is almost versing versing itself in the in the conductor landscape in twitter because we've got twitter uh conductor you know ai generation actually helping us to create <laughs> the differing sides so it's but nonetheless it's quite it's it's also important because we and something that's actually been run through great through the conductor training that you guys are running is that helping us to understand what are the best prompts to ensure that we get the most accurate results that can be integrated most efficiently into conductor software like we could do it some of the ways you were doing it before the training would have been great, but it ended up probably being more time consuming than actually doing it ourselves. Um, so being very particular and very, it's almost, it's almost skill set. Um, but no, we'll just do a couple more questions before we wrap it up. Um, bit of a simple one. How do simulations make better leaders? Well, because it accelerates um, experience, it accelerates expertise. So what you want is our leaders who understand the situation where things 
feel uh, common. You know, like they, they go, I've lived through this. I've been through this before. And therefore, there's no need to be concerned because I know how to, if not control the situation, how to respond to that in a controlled way. And so um, you want a leader that's calm at the top because uh, panic and fear are contagious. So if you have a leader who is, you know, like running around, I don't know what's going on, that's going to spread throughout the group. So you don't want that. So having leaders that have been through simulations, they're going to be much more confident, much more capable because they've grown during that exercise. Fantastic answer. Um, now to this question, if you say Star Trek, I'll edit it out and make it say Star Wars. <laughs> but do you have any must-reads or viewings? Um, well, actually, so this so this week we have um, a team-building uh, day and we're all going to go to the cinema to watch The Italian Job. And what I really love about The Italian Job movie and filmmaking in general it, is it's a team exercise so you can't you can't make a film without teamwork um the production designers the costume and makeup um the film you know the camera team and so on so it's a it's a huge collaborative endeavor and the outcome of a of a movie is the sum of all of the parts and if you get synergy then it's greater than the sum of the parts because everyone's working to get working together. And what's good about the Italian job as a movie is it shows the need for rehearsal because they get it wrong. They keep smashing up cars and everything, but it's in a safe environment because they're on a, on a sort of test track before they go to do it to the real world. So that builds up confidence. So when they do it in the real world, they can see that uh, things go as things go as planned. And um, it's also got a, a hack because they go to Turin and they have to, re- I mean, it's all the, it's like a punch tape. So they have to go and hack the system in a physical way. Uh, there was no internet at that time. So yeah, it's quite, I think it's a good, I think it's a good, um, I think it's a good movie as well. It's only 90 minutes, not like modern films. Like, so Martin Scorsese, oh dude, get your films down. He can, the guy can't, he's a great director, but he can't do a film in less than four hours. And I, I just, I mean, life's ticking away. I don't have four hours to spend in one afternoon. <laughs> so it's 90 minutes. It's very tightly controlled. Lots of cliches. Cockneys always come off as bad. I'm from the East End, so I'm always uh, sensitive to how we're always like the villains. Or, you know, like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's good. It's a good It's a good movie. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And um, uh, I think we're going to introduce the film to a new generation of uh, people in the company that won't have seen it before. I'm obviously talking about the 1969 version with Michael Caine, not the terrible remake with Marky Mark. Uh, so don't don't watch that. Go to, course, go to the original. Course. I would I would never think otherwise. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think that's a perfect end to our time, Robert. Uh, no, really, really appreciate your enthusiasm and uh, extensive answers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.